I wanted to go see it. And uh, so we decided to make a trip of it. We all went and, and uh, spent, I think, about eight hours in the ark, in or around it. And I've told people, well, you know, you could go and probably go through it in a couple of hours. But uh, if you want to, you know, take pictures, if you want to see everything and read the different uh, plaques and everything, it's going to take you some time. Plus, there's a great restaurant just right with the ark, and you could go in there and have a really good meal. But we really enjoyed that, really enjoyed that. It, it, uh, it helped me get a much clearer perspective and broader perspective of what it could have been like. And of course, since nobody alive today was alive then and in the ark, we, we do some kind of calculated conjecture as to uh, just what it would have been like in the ark. But what I wanted ever since then, and I took probably about 150 different pictures, and I uh, appreciate uh, Damon getting those transferred to my computer from the, from the uh, iPad on which I took those, um, so that I could use some of those. But I've, I've tried to bring up some other graphics as well to help us really get a broader perspective on the ark. Now, I'm going to do a series on this, and I don't know, maybe three, four, five, you know, sessions. Not going to take a long time each time because I, you know, want to keep us in our regular Sunday night time frame, pretty close to that. But what I wanted this to do is really give you a good perspective of what, how we can understand the ark and really help us understand, and I really struggled with a title for this series. Uh, a true historical event, Noah's flood, or I, I, we could say the Genesis flood. We could label it God's flood because he is the one who brought it upon. But you'll hear a lot of people who are skeptical about, no, it, you know, that didn't really happen, or, you know, no, it wasn't a worldwide flood. Well, is the Bible in error? Does the Bible lie? It's God's word. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally from the Greek meaning it is God breathed, it is his very word. So did God lie to us? Uh, or did he guide the writers to write something and they said, no, we're not gonna write that, we're gonna write something else. It, it, it is presented as a true historical event with a purpose. And so this first part of this series, I want to try to get across to you that it is that purpose that I want us to understand as we go into this. The purpose of this study is to assure the Bible student that all of the details of the flood account in Noah's day are reasonable and believable. Now we could boil that down and simply say they're accurate or they're true. When we read what is written there beginning in Genesis chapter 6, we can say that is what happened, exactly what happened. That is exactly the way it was. Now you'll have people, they'll come and, and they'll talk about how different, different aspects or features of the Earth's surface, uh, how that all happened over long eons of time millions and millions or maybe even billions of years and they'll talk about how the the Grand Canyon was slowly gradually 
just maybe fractions of an inch each year eroded away by the river that runs through there. But what they completely discount is, and, and, and what they're saying is, and if they, you look at all the strata, levels of strata in the Earth's crust, and those are the layers of the different kinds of, of uh, dirt and deposits that are laying there. And if you're looking, say, at a hillside that's open and it's not covered with grass, you can see those different levels of strata. And embedded within those, if you get into a place where you can actually see those or you did a little bit of digging, there'd be all kinds of fossils stuck in those different levels. And so the geologists would say, well, this level of strata was so many millions of years old. Well, why? Because the fossils in there, they lived so many millions of years ago. And from what I can gather from reading on this and listening to some extent is, okay, how do you date the fossils? Well, because they're in this level of strata. And I'm thinking, now that's circular reasoning, it sounds like to me. You're saying the strata dates to this period because of the fossils that are embedded in it. You're telling me the fossils our date to this period because they're in that level of strata. There has to be a better way to figure it out. But what, what that does is that's calculation based on a, a I don't know, a, can you say theory? But it's a line of reasoning that's called uniformitarianism. And that says everything around us happens on an equal level at an equal period of time all the way through time. So you date this level of strata based upon, you say it takes this many hundred thousands of years or maybe a million years to develop that strata and so then you, you date this whole level, all of these levels of strata going back to millions of years because that's how long it takes these different levels of strata to develop. Well. That's uniformitarianism. Everything happens at a uniform pace all of the time. But now we have earthquakes, don't we? We have floods all over the world. Uh, we have volcanic eruptions, and all of those are catastrophic events. So there's another line of reasoning that is completely discounted pretty much in dating the age of the earth and so if you listen to geologists, they'll say, uh, most of them will say, oh, you have you know, millions or billions of years. But there are a whole lot of scientists out there, including geologists, I mean, lots of them, who they have come to the understanding, the reasoning that, no, no, it's not that way. The, the Earth isn't nearly that old. It's really a rather young Earth. And, and so you have to take into account catastrophism. And that is completely counter. It's on the other end of the spectrum from uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism, everything happens at the same pace all the time, year by year, decade by decade, century by century, millennium by millennium, and, and on and on and on. Catastrophism says there are catastrophic events that change the appearance and the earth uh, and the crust of the earth. Now, if you think about a global, worldwide incredible flood you're talking about catastrophism or a catastrophic event unlike anything that any of us have ever seen I've lived through a tornado I've lived through a number of hurricanes I, I've seen catastrophic events 
and they change things. But you're talking about a flood, and notice that, that God, when he brought the flood, and we'll get to this in, later in our study, he did not just cause it to rain upon the earth, but he also said he opened, or he, he opened the fountains of the deep. And that's, that's indicating that he unleashed the waters within the crust of the earth, and there is an incredible amount of water in the crust of the earth. Where is the, and I believe I'm accurate in this, where is the largest underground river in the United States? Does anybody know? Western Nebraska, I believe. You say, what? It's dry out there. I'm talking about in the crust of the earth now. And so, tremendous amounts of water. So when we're thinking about it, and I always thought for many, many years until I got into this in a rather deep study many years ago, many years ago, um, I always thought of the flood as being, man, it rained on the earth for 40 days. The rain just came down. Well, there's only so much water or moisture in the atmosphere. But God unleashed the fountains of the deep, it says. And so, undoubtedly, there must have been earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, which produce a great deal of water. And so he allowed the waters in the crust of the earth to come forth, and that was part of what covered the earth for that not just a period of 40 days, but it went on for a long, long time because it took a long time for the waters to recede. And how did God cause those waters to recede? Again, we'll talk about that in a later part of the series. But I want, I want this to be, and I really believe this can be, a faith-building, a faith-strengthening study. To help us understand that the flood was real, and that when we read the details, we're not talking about wild imagination. We're talking about the exact facts as God guided those writers to write them. And so here is a picture of the ark that is sitting there in Kentucky. Now, if you look at all the people and notice that they've got umbrellas out there, it's, they're getting ready for the, you know, the flood right there. I'm just, just joking. But that's a picture of the ark. If we, let's see, if we go back here, uh, let me see if I can go back. Uh, can't do anyway. Okay, there we go. No, no, let's see. Is that? Okay, go back. Let's go back one more if I can. Oh, I, I can't. I'm not. Okay, there it is. There is a, there's a, there's a, a farther view of it. The ark that has been built there is an exact replica. It is not just a scale model, well, it is a scale model to the nth degree. I mean, they took exactly the, the dimensions that are laid out in Genesis, and that's what they built there. They tried to be absolutely true in every detail. Now, once you get inside the ark, they had to try to figure things out, but we'll show some pictures of that in a later part of this study. But that is it. Now you look at that, that is an incredibly large vessel. Huge. And when you think about how it's constructed, it is very seaworthy. But something that we need to understand, there's no engine on there, there's no sails, there's no rudder. It was not designed to go anywhere. It was designed to simply preserve the lives 
of that one family, Noah and his family, and all of the animals that God guided to go in there to be preserved through the flood, and then to start to repopulate the earth. It was just intended to preserve the life, just to take care of the people and rise them to the top of the floodwaters and keep them safe and secure during all of those many months of the floods being upon the earth. Okay, now, so there's the purpose of the study, and there's a little closer view, and you can see again, when you look at it in, and, and you're looking probably there at 100 yards or so away, and, and when you look at the people from way back here, up there, when you get right to it, it's a very small, you have somebody standing right at the end, very small, very small position within the ark. Now, what was the purpose? What was the purpose of the flood? It wasn't just that God said, you know, I think it'd be really neat to, you know, flood the world right now. There was a purpose behind it. And I know my wife and I were talking about this this afternoon. Humanity sank into such depths of wickedness that God was moved to cleanse the earth and start all over again with mankind. Interesting. Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 5, the text tells us, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Well, we could look around us today, couldn't we? We could look around us, in fact, in virtually any, gen any, any generation of humanity's existence, we could say, yeah, the wickedness of man is great in the earth right now. But it goes beyond that. It doesn't, it doesn't stop there with that just general assessment. It goes on and says, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, we think things look pretty bad right now. And I've been doing a whole series of bulletin articles over the last five or six weeks talking about how our culture is in shambles, it is in ruins because of immorality. And a lot of that can be traced back to the diminishing of our respect for God. And you can look at it from a whole lot of different perspectives, but that is fact, and that is the fact of the matter in our nation right now. And when you talk about culture, that is the mindset of a nation. And so when the culture goes down, the nation naturally goes down with it. So God saw that the wickedness of man was not only great in the earth, but that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I, it's hard for me to imagine that all of mankind, every human being, basically, we're talking about on the face of the earth, was wicked, evil. They only thought evil thoughts, wicked thoughts, on an ongoing basis. See, I, I, I can't really fully wrap my mind, my mind around what that reality would be like, but that was the state of humanity in the world in the days of Noah. So the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what was the population of the world at that time? Some people might say, well, it was probably only a few hundred thousand or a few million. It, it was probably large population. Maybe not as large as the, the seven billion or so that are on the face of the earth right now, but, but it was not just a tiny little group of people. 
but everybody was wicked. Everybody was evil. And so God decided to scratch the whole thing and start over again at the beginning with mankind. He, he one family he picked out and said, that's a righteous family. And I think probably largely because of the head of the family, Noah. He found, he found favor in God's eyes. He was righteous before God. Now, what imagery in your mind would portray pure evil? In our culture right now, in our country, we try to explain away a lot of evil, a lot of wicked acts. We try to blame it on, you know, the influence of this or the results of this or the background of this or that or whatever. Let me tell you, pure evil exists. I can say that because the devil exists and he is pure evil. And he's always out there, as Peter portrays him in, Second Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, as a roaring lion walking around, about seeking whom he may devour. He is pure evil and he influences people to the extent that they will allow him to influence them. So what imagery would you, in your mind, say, well, that portrays pure evil? I think that's what we can say, humanity as a whole. And I'm not talking about a segment here, a segment there, a nation over there, a nation over there. Again, going back to Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 through, God, God says, God's word says, every intent of the thoughts and imagination of their heart was only evil continually. We would not want to live in a world like that. It would be horrible. You wouldn't know what to do, how to protect yourself. But what image, what imagery could you think of? And I think we'd come up at a loss, wouldn't we? But we could see some examples that we might be able to relate to what about if we said, well, okay, just graphics. Could that portray evil? Or what about some things we experience and we see in the news around us? What about violence? Would that portray pure evil? Or what about if we looked at the news reports and we said there are conflicts and wars all over the place all the time and certainly we see them going on right now most of them just don't make the news or if they make the news at all they're just a smattering a little bit of a mention here or there but there are wars and conflicts going on all the time all over the world is that an indication of pure evil well what about something else that we read about all the time and we see news reports on all the time and that's murder. Murder goes on, murder goes on in our country all the time, all the time. My wife and I went to Chicago a few years ago and we went to visit her mother who lives in northern Indiana about 35 miles south of Chicago and we got there uh, late at night she had the news on, or my mother-in-law had the news on from Chicago, and they had had already, I think, 80-some uh, killings, murders. I don't think it was just shootings. I think it was killings in the city of Chicago already that month, and the month wasn't finished yet. There were still a few days to go. Well, that's just one example. It goes on all the time. Is that an example? Is that an image of pure evil? See, we, we get so used to hearing the reports, 
we become kind of numbed to it and, and it doesn't have the same impression on us that it probably should. But how, wh whatever we can relate to in our reality today as humankind, just imagine it was far, far multiplied worse in Noah's day. Satan, the tempter, led mankind into such evil that God determined to destroy the world through the flood. John 8 and verse 44, look at some of these descriptions of the devil and his work. Jesus said, you are of, the father, of your father, the devil, and desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Could you imagine talking to somebody and as long as their lips were moving, you couldn't trust anything they said because they lied all the time. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. James chapter 3 and verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, and it sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire itself by hell. Well, we see the misuse of the tongue. How many fights start over words? How many wars start over words? Every one of them, I would suggest to you, pretty much. And sin is not inconsequential. We need to understand sin has its toll upon us, and especially from a spiritual perspective. In the parable of the tares, as Jesus was, was explaining the meaning of the tares, and those would have been some kind of weed that was sown in among the good crops. In Matthew chapter 30, uh, 13, verses 37 through 42, he answered and said to them, he who sows the, the, the good seed is the son of man. Now he's speaking from a spiritual perspective here. He's not talking about agricultural crops. He's talking about souls. And so he says the enemy who sold, uh, who sold them, that is the tares, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, the final day of judgment in other words, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of the kingdom, out of his kingdom, all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Those Souls that are unrighteous, ungodly, wicked, evil, the devil's behind them in their influence to lead them into that kind of state of being. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to counteract the devil. And all of the works that he, was that he was doing and influencing through humanity all the way up until that time. Jude chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then he uses as an illustration as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Wicked cities, so wicked that God could not find ten righteous souls within them. In Revelation 21 and verse 8, 
But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, we're talking about the results of wickedness, of ungodliness, of evil. And now imagine that that was the state of being of all the world, all of humanity, all over the world in the days of Noah. And that's why God destroyed the earth at that time. Do you think, when you stop and think about it, let your mind run a little bit, that you could imagine that the world in Noah's day was like being described as hell on earth? Again, I, I can't really imagine it fully. How bad it was. How bad it was. Well, Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. So God looked upon the earth, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Again, not a certain group of people here and there. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in, the flood and the, bringing, bringing in the flood and the world of the ungodly. You see, again, it's hard to comprehend how bad it was. And I simply use all of these texts of Scripture to help us understand the purpose of the flood and the reason behind it, why God came to that decision. When God created mankind on day one, two, three, four, five, and mankind on six, but what did God do when he created everything that we see around us? God created a perfect, perfect world, if we want to think of it that way. There was no sin. He, it was perfect authority. The all who were alive at that time, the first man and the first woman, they were submissive to God's will, and he created perfect marriage. Now, what have we done with it? Everything changed one day because the devil appeared on the scene. He told the woman, ah, what God told you about if you eat the fruit of this particular tree over here, you're, you're going to die. He said, it's not true. It's not going to happen. And she gave in to the temptation, and she sinned against God, led her husband to sin against God, and everything changed that day. And so the result, the devil's deed required God. And there's a portrait of a serpent, and his deed required God to send a Savior into the world in the person of his own son. That's how bad it was. And more and more, mankind turned away from God and so corrupted humanity, corrupted authority, corrupted marriage. So we might ask the question then, what about now? The pre-flood world was exceedingly wicked, wicked beyond our imaginations, and deserved to be judged. 
Now, what about our world today? What about our state of humanity today? Do we deserve God's judgment? Well, certainly. Because again, the wages of sin is death. God gives us the ultimate way to the best life and the best hope, and that's heaven. When we sin, we turn our backs on God. We walk away from that hope. We'll get further into this particular study next time, but if there's anyone here this evening who needs to respond to the Lord's invitation, our song number is 876. If you need to repent of your sins, and perhaps ask for the prayers of the church, or if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, we're going to stand and sing. We want to encourage you to take that step. If you need to talk with somebody or study with somebody, please ask us before you leave the building this evening. We'll make that happen. If you need to come, won't you come right now as we stand together and sing.